Thank you for downloading this sermon from Heritage Baptist Church. We are so glad that you did. We believe that biblically faithful, Christ-centered, God-glorifying local churches are the primary means that God has chosen to expand His kingdom. If you are part of such a church, we hope that this message will supplement your spiritual diet. If you aren't yet part of such a church, we would love for you to visit us. For more details, please check out our website www.heritagebaptist.co.za Well, good morning. It's a wonderful privilege to be back again. And uh, thank you uh, for all your prayers uh, for myself and our family and uh, encouraging messages. Uh, I'm very grateful to the Lord for uh, being able to have a sabbatical every, I think it was six or seven years. Uh, it is a wonderful privilege. Um, so if you want that, become a pastor. <laughs> um, no, I, I praise God for that and uh, thank him for a time of being able to, to rest. Um, just an announcement before I uh, begin the sermon. So as you know, we are on the lookout for a, a larger venue. And uh, there is the possibility of a venue that might might uh, go on the market. So uh, nothing concrete yet, but we just thought we would bring it to the church that you can be praying. If this is the venue, it is a larger venue with uh, more parking and really would seem to fit our needs. So yeah, if please be praying that if it's the Lord's will that he would undertake and open the doors and uh, also provide the, the resources for that. Well, we're back in 2 Corinthians, so uh, if you weren't around last year, if you've joined the church this year, uh, you can go back and listen to the sermons that are available online, uh, but I want to just give us a bit of context. We're in chapter 12, so you can turn there in your Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, just some context so you know what's going on. Um, Again, if you're new to heritage, maybe you're not used to churches where they preach uh, what we call Lectio Continuum. So start in chapter 1, verse 1, and then the next Sunday carry on with the next section and the next section. But we do believe that is the most helpful way to preach uh, because you preach the full counsel of God. Remember what Paul said? He said, I gave you the whole counsel of God, and we believe this is the best way. Otherwise, pastors will pick their favorite topics or things that they enjoy and not really touch on the topics that convict them or things they don't care about. That's why many churches you'll just find they talk about money the whole time. Um, But when you preach through God's word you're forced to deal with all the doctrines that arise in the text and uh, to challenge oneself and then uh, one's hearers as well. So Um, We believe that's very important. We're now in chapter 12, but the context is uh, the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to a church that he planted in Corinth in uh, Greece. It was a very worldly city, uh, lots of sexual immorality. It was a modern city where many entrepreneurs went. Uh, It was full of of, uh, pagan temples and uh, stadiums. So very similar to our own context, multicultural, 
uh, many religions, different socioeconomic brackets. It was a place people went to make a name for themselves. Uh, and also, as I said, gross immorality. Again, very similar to our own context. And in that milieu, people were being saved out of that culture into the church. But as you know, unfortunately, if you've been saved for any period of time, even though God saves us, it's not as though all our sin just falls away. That would be fantastic. Uh, um, we'd long for that, but we know that's not the case. We bring our wrong thinking and our sinful behavior into the church, and now it's the process of, of growing in holiness and working through those things. Uh, and so this church in Corinth had, uh, was messed up in so many ways because of all the the, the, the sinful culture around it. They brought that into the church. There was sexual immorality in the church. There was confusion about the gifts of the Spirit. There were people trying to one-up one another. They were even getting drunk at communion. Uh, all sorts of problems. They were divisive. They had their favorite preachers. If this guy was preaching, they didn't want to be at church. If their guy was there, then they were there, and they, they played each other you know, off against one another. All sorts of problems. And into this church came these false apostles. Uh, Paul sarcastically calls them super apostles because that's really what they thought of themselves. Uh, they thought they were the bee's knees. They thought they had it all together. And they sought to turn the church against uh, the apostle Paul, their spiritual father in the faith. He tells them that. I'm your father in the faith. I planted this church. And uh, if you read through 2 Corinthians, you'll see Paul's heart for this, this church, this church that treated him so badly. They actually were seduced by these false teachers and turned against Paul. And these false teachers claim to, to have greater revelation. They claim to uh, be anointed by the Lord, not like Paul. And one of the, they had many arguments against the apostle Paul, which come out in 2 Corinthians. They said, Paul suffers so much, therefore he can't be a man of God. Look how much he suffers. Uh, they said he can't be a man of God because he, he looks ugly. He's not as handsome as us. Uh, he, he, he can't be a, a man of God because he's not a, as, as good a preacher, as eloquent as we are. And so Paul has to intervene to try and rescue this church that he loves from these false apostles. And uh, he, he does it in a very sophisticated way because these guys were boasting about how great they were, how, how powerful they were as apostles, how, how as I said, good-looking and eloquent and wealthy, and they lacked suffering, all of these things. They were boasting. They even brought letters of recommendation from other, other churches. They had their CVs up to show how great they were. And so Paul says... You know, I don't want to boast about my own abilities and my own experiences, but you force me to boast. And so just when you think Paul is going to start boasting, well, actually, I'm not so ugly. My mom thinks I'm handsome. Uh, uh, and I'm actually quite good at talking. Um, and, you know, I don't suffer that much. He actually begins to boast in the most ironic way and actually turn the table on these false apostles. He begins to boast in his weaknesses. He actually begins to boast and say, well, you actually have no idea how much I suffer, how many times I've been shipwrecked, how many times I've been beaten, how many times I've been stoned, etc., etc. 
He then begins to boast about things that were shameful in the Greco-Roman culture. He boasts about working with his hands, manual labor. That was shameful. Uh, he, he, he boasts about uh, not receiving money from the church. And again, for them, it was all about money. And so he turns things on, on their heads. And that's where we come to today. We continue where Paul ironically boasts. So if you can open your Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 to 10. I'm going to read the passage and then we'll go through it. Paul says, I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is a reading of God's word. So verse 1, I must go on boasting. So in the previous chapter, chapter 11, he had been boasting, ironically, about his sufferings. And uh, now he says, well, I'm going to carry on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. So as you go through Second Corinthians, you'll see over and over again, Paul will say, I don't want to boast. You're forcing me to boast. I hate talking about myself and my experiences. I hate drawing attention to myself. Uh, in fact, he, he says, I'm speaking like a madman. Okay? I'm speaking like an unbeliever. That's how unbelievers speak. Okay? They're always drawing attention to themselves and their experiences. You know those people in conversations. You, t you say, I did this. They always have to one-up that. Uh, no, I did this. Uh, Paul's saying, that's how non-Christians talk. That's not the way I want to talk. Uh, but then when he does start talking, he boasts about the things that were shameful. And even today are still shameful. So he says, there's nothing to be gained by it, but I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. And so he comes to this topic of visions and revelations. So again, these super apostles, these false apostles, in the Greek, these pseudo apostles, they boasted about their visions and their revelations. 
You know, I, the Lord said this to me. I, I was caught up into heaven and I saw this and I spoke. Now, does that sound familiar to, the, to any of you about the current church situation? Uh, how many pulpits today will people, men and women will be saying, you know, this past week I was in heaven chatting to the Lord. And, um, you know, he told me this uh, and I received this. You can go and Google and find it all over the place. I just found one example. The, the so-called shepherd... Bushiri. He says, before I came into this place, I had a vision. I saw blue paint in a basin and there was a white cloth hanging above it. An angel was holding this cloth. So he's seen angels. On the other hand, there was another basin with clear water. As I watched attentively, this angel then took this towel and put it in the basin where there was blue paint. As expected, the towel turned blue. He then removed the stained towel and he put it in the pure water and this clean water then became blue as well. To my surprise, however, the first basin that had blue paint was no longer blue, it was now clear. It was as though there had been a reversal. The Lord then went, the Lord now, now he sees the Lord, then went on to reveal the interpretation of this vision. The blue paint symbolizes the glory that the worldly people enjoy, the cars, the mansions, the multi-billionaire companies. The pure water symbolizes the saints who do not have what these people have. And the towel is the mantle of God. Now look at this. God said, so God has revealed this to him, within six months from now, there will be a huge financial transfer from wicked men to God's children. Okay? That was 2016. I haven't experienced it yet. So, uh, That took me one second to find this. Uh, you can go and Google all over the place. You will the, the, the well-known names in, in the church and all their visions, all the things that they see and how they boast about them. You go and look at the history of so many uh, cultic denominations in South Africa. Uh, the IPHC, Modise, had a vision. The Lord told him, I must do this. Lechanyani, ZCC. Again, he had a vision of the Lord. The Lord told him to do this. All of these things are based on visions, and these people claim their authority from visions and revelations, and they boast about them, and it's not a new thing, it's not contemporary, it's been going on for 2,000 years. All the way back in Corinth, they were doing it. They were claiming their authority from these supposed visions and experiences that they had. There's a saying in English, six feet above contradiction, and it actually comes from the idea of pulpits. They used to be raised six feet above the congregation. And the idea was that whatever the preacher says, you can't contradict. Okay? Now, that's true. If what the preacher is saying is what God's Word says, you can't contradict it because it's what God says. Um, but it, the idea is there's a bad way that a person puts themselves above contradiction. If I come to you and I say, the Lord has shown me, you must marry so-and-so. What can you say to that? That's beyond contradiction. The Lord has shown me. How can you outdo that? You see, you see the, the problem that, that arises here? In churches like that, when somebody says, the Lord showed me this and the Lord told me this, unless you know your Bible and know that's rubbish, you, how can you contradict it? And that's what these people were doing. So Paul says, look, um, I'm now going to talk about visions and revelations, and he's going to talk about himself now. Now look at this, verse 2. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I want you to notice that when he talks about his, his experience, 
He talks in the third person. He doesn't say I, he says I knew a man. This is to even deflect any glory to himself. He's so, he's almost, he's embarrassed to have to even mention these things. He doesn't want people focusing on this. But because they're saying all these things, he says, well, I've also had, uh, in fact, I've had the real thing. I was caught up into the third, hem, third heaven. Maybe you're wondering, what is that, the third heaven? That sounds very esoteric. Um, well, it was just the, 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 the world view of the time. The first heaven is just the atmosphere in which we, we live. The second heaven is the, the sky, the stars and the sun. And the third heaven was God's dwelling place. So you don't need to lose sleep over it. Um, uh, he's, he's caught up into the third heaven, into God's presence. It's also called paradise in verse 3. You can see there, I know, and I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And then he says this, and he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. Now, isn't that amazing? He, it's almost a useless revelation in a certain sense. He's not even allowed, he's not going to tell us, and the Lord told me this and this and this. He says, I can't even tell you. It's not lawful for me to tell you what happened. Okay? So I was caught up into heaven, but I can't tell you what, what happened. Again, notice the irony. I've had a real experience. I was caught up into the presence of God, but I cannot even tell you about it. In fact, it takes Paul 14 years before he'll even mention this experience. And there's a lesson here for us. If you've had a real experience with the Lord, and now Paul was an apostle, he had unique sufferings, and so God was extremely gracious to Paul and gave him special revelations. Uh, and so don't expect the same thing. But if you're a Christian and you've walked with the Lord for, for a, a, a lengthy period of time, you may well have had very special experiences with the Lord. Not visions and revelations, not being caught up into heaven, but moments where there is an overwhelming sense of the love of God. It might be in a church service, it might be alone in your prayer times. You can read church history, the Puritans, uh, biographies of godly people, many of them... At, at certain times, God is blessed with very special, intimate experiences with the living God. An overwhelming sense that God loves them and, um, and is for them. And, and they just, it's hard for them to explain, but they don't talk about it. Because it's so special and intimate. Okay. It's sacred. You see, these, these false apostles that, that every week are telling you a new thing they've experienced with God, you know that's rubbish. Do you think you'll talk lightly if you had a, an experience with the living God that was so intimate? That is sacred. It's like the union between a husband and wife. You know how, how men in the world talk about their conquests? There was no intimacy, there was no vulnerability, because they can just talk about it. Yeah, I slept with this one, I slept with that one. It means nothing. When you, when you have a proper experience with the living God, it is sacred, it is special. You don't go around telling everyone. And that's what Paul is saying. I, I was caught up into heaven. I saw the Lord. The Lord gave him this special experience because he was an apostle. And he, remember, right at the beginning of his ministry, the Lord said to him, go and tell Paul how much he is going to suffer for my name's sake. Right at the beginning, the Lord says, Paul... You are going to suffer a lot, okay? 
and he did. You don't boast about special experiences with the Lord. <clears throat> now, you don't need to chase after them um, uh, to live for that. We have God's word, and that is sufficient for us. Uh, but it is a wonderful thing if God chooses in his grace to draw near to us in a special way. And that is something special between you and God. And that is a wonderful thing. But notice that Paul is not building his authority. He is not building the church based on his revelations, his visions. He's building it on the truth of God's word. So verse 5, Paul says, On behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Then he says in verse 6, though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool. So he says, look, if I was to boast, I wouldn't, it wouldn't be foolish of me, for I would be speaking the truth. Okay. And so yeah, he's contrasting his experience of God with these false apostles. Okay. They never experienced God. They weren't caught up into heaven and had real experiences. They were liars. Whatever experience they did have, if they even had one, was demonic. It was not the real thing. Paul says, I could boast if I wanted to because it was real. It's true. But I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So Paul is not going to try and manipulate people to think more of him through his ecstatic experiences, through his visions, through his revelations. He says to the Corinthians, you must... Your judgment of me must be based on what you see of me and what you hear from me. What I preach, what I proclaim, what I write, and how I live. Okay. Isn't that amazing? He's not trying to put himself up here because, look, I have all these amazing experiences. I have this pedigree. He says, no, I want you to judge me correctly. You judge me by my character and what I proclaim, the message that I proclaim. And throughout Scripture, you find that's exactly how we should judge people. Okay. Is that how you live your life? Is that how you want people to judge you? Or are you trying to put on a, you know, a facade so people think more of you than they should? We know that on Facebook <laughs> and Instagram. We want everyone to think that we're different to how we really are. And he has an application for us. You need to apply this to how you look at religious leaders or Christian leaders. Are you judging them based on they're smooth, they're articulate, they're eloquent? These guys were eloquent. The Bible's not against eloquence per se, but you know that eloquence can manipulate people. Eloquent politicians, eloquent preachers can manipulate people, manipulate their emotions. Get people to cry when they want them to cry. They know how to move people. Manipulate their wills to give money, to do this, to do the next thing. That's not the eloquence the Bible is talking about. That's why Paul, earlier on, we've seen already, he speaks plainly. This is the truth of what God says. We declare it openly and plainly. We are not manipulating people. Uh, but do you look at the charismatic, how dynamic the person is, how wealthy they are, how good-looking they are, how, how clever they are on social media, uh, their spectacular spiritual experiences, what do they claim they've experienced? 
Is that how you judge character? When you're looking for a spouse, are you also looking at those things, the external? In the Bible, over and over again, says to focus on the character of a person. And what comes out of there? Their mouth. And especially when it comes to the preaching of God's word. Is it in accord with the scriptures? Can you judge it by the standard of the scriptures? And so Paul says in verse 7, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. So he, he has this incredible experience, caught up into the third heaven, into the presence of God. It's so amazing. He doesn't know if he's in his body or out of his body. He's not certain of these things. But he sees things that are inexpressible, and he's told not to talk about them. It's unlawful for him even to declare them. So we don't know. You can't even begin to surmise. We don't know because it's, he doesn't tell us. Okay? Uh, that's not the point. If, if your obsession is, I wonder what he saw, you've missed the whole point. That's not the focus. He says that actually is, was simply for him so that he could endure as an apostle who suffered greatly. If it was for the good of the church, then it would have been told us. Okay, so don't, uh, you know, don't go and you know, write a book on what Paul saw. Uh, <laughs> or buy a book that someone says what Paul saw. Uh, we don't know and don't waste your time there. Uh, what we do know is that it was incredible and he had to be humbled. He says, to keep me from being conceited. And conceited here is a very rare word that he uses. The only other place in scripture where this word conceited, this specific word is used as the idea of pride. But this is a stronger word. It is used when Paul refers to the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Commonly known as the Antichrist. So when Paul talks about the Antichrist, one of the, the characteristics of the Antichrist is conceitedness. He opposes and exalts himself against everything that is good, against God himself. That's what pride is. Okay. Sinful pride is Antichrist. It is the most wretched thing, it is the most evil thing to exalt yourself up against the living God. That's what you're doing. Claiming your abilities as your own, thinking you're better than others because of something you've done or achieved, instead of acknowledging everything comes from, from God. And so Paul says, to keep me from becoming like that, that pride, that antichrist spirit, the Lord sends him a thorn in the flesh. And that's why the title for this sermon is Visions and Violence. So you have the picture of, it's sort of a violent act, you know, thorns stuck into someone's flesh. The word can be translated as a stake, um, and so some people have argued that's a better translation. Not really, because if you're impaled on a stake, you know, he couldn't do anything then. Whereas he's able still to do ministry. He's able to travel and accomplish great things. It's a thorn, it's this constant pain, night and day. There's something going on that is a hindrance, that is hurtful, that is... Uh, that, that, that seeks to, it's debilitating in one sense. Now, a lot of ink has been spilt over what is this thorn in the flesh? Okay. Um, 
and and if you if you get a you know if you go to seminary it'll be it's a fun discussion because theologian ner theological nerds we enjoy this kind of thing uh, what is this thorn in the flesh that he's talking about there's lots of different arguments the one could be the flesh is his body he's talking about his physical body so uh, some some physical pain or suffering so there have been papers written on any number of things Paul had malaria Paul had severe headaches uh, Paul had epilepsy uh, Paul had eye eye problems this is the one I lean to just just because I think it fits with the rest of scripture it's not a hill to die on or anything uh, but it does seem that Paul had something wrong with his eyes he talks about his affliction in the flesh and to the church at Galatia and then he says to the church at Galatia at one time you loved me so much you were you were even willing to pluck out your own eyes and give them to me and then later in the, the letter to the Galatians he says see I'm writing this part with my own hand and you can tell it's me because the writing is so big which would indicate he didn't have good eyesight um, and if it was a certain eye disease it was probably pussy and looked terrible which would fit with people saying you know his bodily presence is contemptible we read, read there in 2nd Corinthians 12 um, so it's just putting little pieces together that's sort of where I lean um, that I think that there was something there one commentator says uh, socially it was a socially debilitating disease or disfigurement which was made the subject of ridicule and invidious com comparison okay so that might have been what it is another theory is that flesh here means uh, one's sinful nature because flesh is used in the Bible as one's sinful nature and so then the argument is it was some great temptation uh, that he battled with whether it was sexual lust whether it was anger whether it was greed whatever it was something that was really a strong thorn in his nature his carnal nature that was he, he was really tempted in a powerful way to sin in this area and then the third view is that a messenger of Satan might be taken as as a person and to say well uh, it was a person or people that went around slandering him okay and then they say specifically the people in Corinth who said all these bad things that one does it, to me seems the weakest because it's it seems he got the thorn in the flesh 14 years ago when he had the revelation the church in Corinth is only later on so but all three are possible exegetically and there's a reason why there's not certainty and this is so that we can apply it to our lives There's application to all of our lives if it was just sickness and you don't battle with sickness then you'd say oh well it's not really re relevant to me um, if it was you know strong temptation in a certain area and that you know you don't really have that too much then you would say well, it's not really that relevant to me I'm not really tempted in that field so much uh, and if it was maybe a person who went around slandering you and you didn't have that then again you could say well that's not really relevant to me I, I believe there's intentional vagueness here so that um, there's application to all of God's people now we're none of us are apostles none of us have seen what Paul saw but we we belong to God and God has to humble us doesn't he all of us battle with pride and so Paul is given this thorn in the flesh and I want you to notice that language Paul says it was given to me okay. it was a gift okay. 
Isn't that strange? Say, Lord, I don't want this gift. Uh, it's like getting socks for your Christmas or something. <laughs> uh, but obviously, this, this, is, this is incredibly uh, terrible. Now, it's not just this passage that tells us. Philippians 1.29, Paul says, For it has been given to you. So he, ha- he has the gift on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him. Okay? So if you think you're saved because you made a good cho- choice, well, this verse says no. It was a gift. It was given to you to believe. The faith to believe was a gift from God. He chose you. You didn't choose him. He chose to give you the gift of faith. And for that we will be eternally grateful. Because no, no Christian is better than anyone else. No one has earned this gift. That's why it's a gift. It's been given to you. But then Paul says, it has been given to you not only to believe, but also to suffer for him. One of the gifts God will give you if you're his child is suffering. Okay. And what my desire is for myself, because I haven't arrived and for all of God's people here, is that you will see suffering as a gift. You will change the way you think about suffering. It is remarkable how much the Bible deals with suffering, because it knows the human condition. It's, it's not just you know, platitudes and how to live a nice life, and, and it's all fun and games, and anything like that. No, there is suffering. The, you, from, on every page of the Bible there is suffering. All the apostles deal with how to deal with suffering. Count it all joy when you fall into different trials. Do not think it's strange, this fiery trial you're experiencing. Paul says in Romans 5 that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. You will suffer. It is a gift from God to keep you humble. To keep you humble. And he loves you. He knows what you need. Spurgeon has a great section where he talks about suffering. He says he's, he's the master doctor who gives you the exact amount of medicine. Okay, Medicines now taste nice. But those of you, I'll say older than me, although I know as well. But As older people know, all the medicines always tasted horrible. That's how we knew it was good for you. Okay. <laughs> but he says, the Lord, the surgeon says, I'm so glad he gives me exactly the right amount of suffering. He never gives me too much or too little. It's the exact, you know, the, those spoons with measurements. He gives you the exact amount. He's not trying to, he's not a bully. He's not against you. It's to humble you. It is what is best for you. We are so rotten and full of pride. God has to send suffering to keep us humble so that he can use us. So I want us to see, to change the way that we think about suffering because it is such a huge part of the Christian life and part of life. And we live in South Africa, which is a mixture of cultures, but we are heavily influenced by the Western worldview. And the Western worldview is the worst worldview in history at dealing with suffering. They have no framework for suffering. In, a, in an atheistic world, there is no meaning to this universe, there is no God, there is no ultimate authority. 
Suffering is absolutely meaningless, and if your life is all about yourself, suffering is just this horrible thing that gets in the way. And we cannot deny we are influenced by that, because we watch the TV, we read the newspapers, we, we live in this world, we have conversations, and most Christians, all of us, think like that. I just want to get rid of the suffering. Okay? Now, it's not that the Christian has to go and look for suffering. We don't have to go and hurt ourselves intentionally. We, that's not what the Bible tells us. But we need to have a way of dealing with suffering. Now, the first thing Paul does, look at verse 8. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. That word plead is a strong word. It is to beg, to beseech. This thorn in the flesh was not a small thing. You can imagine if it was his eyes, let's just say. This is a man, a student, a scholar, who loved to read. He says, bring me the parchments. How is he going to battle? He's going to battle to read. He's going to battle to write. He's a man who is a public figure. He has to stand in front of people knowing that he, he looks terrible. It's, he's crying out to the Lord, take this away from me. Won't I be more effective if I can read more? Won't I be more effective if I look better? People will get distracted. All of these things. You can imagine. Have you ever thought that? I've often said, Lord, I would be a great Christian if I didn't suffer. You know, if my life went like this. <laughs> I would be so much better as a Christian. It's a lie. Okay. I, I wouldn't. I would be more deceived. Uh, more lazy. More proud. More full of myself. Less, less reliance upon God. What does suffering cause us to do? To cry out to God. All of us know that. When do you pray the most? <laughs> when you're suffering. Okay. I've heard people say, well, that's bad. That's the way it works. Okay. It, it's just a reality. It would be ideal if we all cried out to the Lord exactly the same, good or bad. But that's not the case. And so God uses suffering to humble us. C.S. Lewis said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. And so the first thing he does is he goes to the Lord. And that's good. That's right. If you are in suffering right now, um, and there's only two places, you're either in suffering right now or you will be just now. Okay? That's it. <laughs> Those are the two places for the Christian. What must you do? Do what Paul did. Go to the Lord. Plead with him. It's not wrong. He's our Father. We, can, we have the privilege and the right to do that. Lord, please take this away from me. Notice he pleads three times. Who does that remind you of? The Lord Jesus, hey, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lord, I don't want to drink this cup. I don't want to be separated from you and experience your righteous anger. I don't want to be treated as a sinner. He who knew no sin became sin. Please, Father, take it away from me. Three times. And here it says, Paul pleaded with the Lord three times. Now, I don't think you need to read this as a, well, we should only pray for certain things three times. Um, I'm, I'm not, I don't think it's teaching us that. I do think there's a principle, and I, but I, one would need wisdom in, in specific situations. But it might be that there's certain things that maybe the Lord is just saying, you need to stop asking me to take it away. My grace is sufficient for you. To keep you in this. Now, as I said, I'm not, it's not a blanket and I'm not, it needs wisdom. I think there's certain things we can keep praying. Certainly the salvation of loved ones. Don't stop praying for them. 
Um, but there's certain things where I think that it would be good where you're like, you rest. Lord, you're not taking this away. Let me learn that your grace is sufficient. Because that's what the Lord responds to Paul with. But he said to me, verse 9, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. The Lord's power is made perfect in our weakness. Perfect here means sort of brought to maturity or completion. That's the idea here. God's grace is sufficient for, for his children. Okay? He never, there's not a, you know, it's not like petrol at Oatamba. Okay? They don't run, God's grace does not run out. Okay? There's not a shortage of God's grace. His grace is sufficient for what you are going through if you're his child. It is enough for you to endure it. And not just to endure it, to even delight in your sufferings, okay? Now that's mind-blowing. You could say, well, one thing, I can endure it. But one, another thing to say, Lord, I delight. Thank you. Because if, I, if you didn't send me this, how proud and filthy would I be? How full of myself. And you know how ugly pride is. What a, what a demonic thing pride is. It is the first sin of Satan. I will exalt myself. I will be like the Most High. It's the sin of our parents, Adam and Eve, in the, the garden. It is the fundamental sin of all sins. Pride. I will exalt myself above what God says. If you're a child of God, I hope you say, I don't want to be like that. Lord, if it takes suffering to stop me from being like that, then I will delight in that. I will delight, I can boast in weakness, I can boast in these things, Lord, because you're keeping me humble. You're keeping me reliant upon you. And so I hope you can see our grace is not just unmerited favor, but it's a power that works in us. Okay? God's grace is able to, to cause you to, to endure and to flourish even in the midst of suffering. He says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Again, the irony. The super apostles, they were boasting in their strengths, in their revelations, in their, their eloquence, etc., etc. Paul says, I'm even more gladly going to boast in my weaknesses. Because when I do that, the power of Christ is resting upon me or dwelling within me. And power is used in many different ways in Paul's writings, but I believe power here is the ability to accomplish God's will for your life. Paul was called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. He had a calling placed upon his life, and the means that God used to ensure that Paul was not sidetracked and did not fail is suffering. Suffering is what kept him on the right track. And he enabled him to know the power of Christ so that he could accomplish God's will in his life. And so I believe that's what it is. If you, if you respond rightly to suffering, you will know the power of Christ in you to accomplish God's will for your life. Okay? You will have grace to do whatever it is God has called you to do. God's power will rest upon you and in you. I'm sure there's many of you here 
are going through difficult times that are suffering one degree or another. I know people in the church who have um, constant pain in their bodies, um, relational problems, financial problems, all sorts of suffering that we experience in, in this life. And maybe you're just trying to run away from it the whole time. Okay? And again, I'm not saying it's, ro you know, it's wrong to try and find medical help. Of um, understand, please understand. Uh, God doesn't say we should seek out suffering in a sinful way, like some sort of sadism or something like that. But maybe it's a season that God has called you to and you need to start thinking differently about it and start delighting. Lord, thank you, because this is keeping me from conceit. It's keeping me from pride. So that you can begin to boast even in the things that you're suffering. Lord, thank you for this. In fact, the Bible tells us to do that, isn't that right? Give thanks in all things. Not just all the nice things. Give thanks in all things. Verse 10, Paul says, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content. Some of your translations may say, I, I delight in. That's, that's more the idea. It's not just contentment, but it's I delight in weaknesses. So here you can see there's a broad spectrum that whatever thorn you experience will probably fall into one of these categories. Weaknesses. Do you have weaknesses? Weakness is not a sinful thing. It's just the weakness. Maybe it's physical uh, disabilities. Maybe people have different constitutions, don't they? You read some pastors, they write, you know, a book every day and read five every day. And you're like, well, that's... <laughs> then there's other, others of us who have weaknesses. Uh, but weaknesses, just not able to do what other people do. Um, don't have the abilities that other people There's weaknesses in so many areas of life. Insults. Are you insulted by, by uh, your work colleagues because of your faith? Are you insulted by your peers at university because of your faithfulness to the Lord? Are you mocked? Delight in that. Hardships, persecutions, calamities. Have you had a calamity in your life? Some of you here have lost loved ones. It's calamitous. Retrenched, calamity. Whatever it is, calamities in our lives. Paul says, for the sake of Christ, I'm able now to delight in these things. For when I am weak, then I'm actually strong. Okay? I'm actually then able to live the life that I was supposed to live. And so Paul says it's for the sake of Christ. It is because of Christ that we need to start thinking like this. Okay. And it doesn't, you know it doesn't happen overnight. I know, you know, one day I'm like, Lord, thank you so much. I'm delighting in you. This is so good for me. And the next day, I'm like, Lord, help me to delight in this. Help me to delight in this. Help me to delight in this. Help me to think clearly. Because it's renewing our minds, our thoughts bringing every thought captive to think biblically. Why do the apostles spend so much time on dealing with suffering? Because we battle to think correctly about it. Instead, we become bitter, we become sinfully angry, we question God, we question others, we look down on others, nobody knows what I go through. Instead of learning, Lord, thank you, 
Thank you. I can do Lord, this is the best thing for me so that I can make it to heaven and you can say on that day, well done, good and faithful servant. I delight in this. Lord, you, you have kept me humble. You've kept me from lifting myself up. But if you're responding, constantly responding in the incorrect way to suffering, you're starting to build bad habits, bad character. And in fact, ultimately, it could lead you away from the Lord. How many bitter ex-Christians have you met? Now, of course, we know they were never truly saved. But the warning is there. Those that endure to the end will be saved. How do I know who's elect? I know those that endure to the end are elect. Those that do not give up. Those that suffer and learn this lesson. Paul even says to the Philippians, isn't he? He says, I've learned contentment. So I don't want you to go away condemned. It's not overnight. Don't think, you know, great, I listened to the sermon, sorted. Let's move on to the next subject. No, you have to learn this lesson. To learn contentment in the midst of suffering. And then to learn to delight. Because I see God's hand at work. He loves me. And the gospel is at root here, is, is, is central. This is the gospel. One commentator says, As the power of God was revealed through the weaknesses of the crucified Lord for the salvation of the world, so the life and power of the risen Christ are being revealed through his weak apostles in the midst of humiliations and afflictions. And you can apply that too to all Christians. In the midst of humiliations and afflictions, in our weakness, in our foolishness as the world looks at us, the church continues to grow. People continue to be saved. God continues to be glorified in spite of, not in spite of, but even through our weakness. And that's what we see in Christ. In weakness, the greatest power was shown. So if you're not a Christian, in one sense your suffering is meaningless. It doesn't have to be. Come to Christ. But the Christian message is this. You must be willing to lose your life. Okay? That's not an easy thing. In fact, the language that the Bible uses is death. Take up a cross, not a gold cross necklace. Okay? <laughs> a horrible wooden cross that means ultimately death. Okay? You must be willing to lose your life. Not just physically, but existentially. Not your personality, we're not talking about that, but your own kingdom, your own lusts, your own desires. You must be willing to lose that, to follow him. And that is his suffering. That is the entrance to the kingdom. If you say, Lord, I, I'm willing to lose everything because your forgiveness is so great. Your love is so amazing. Please forgive me. Spurgeon says, in a moment you pass from death to life. The Lord Jesus will never refuse anyone who comes to him. All that come to him. So come to him. Lose your life. It's not worth it. What are you going to do? Build a great kingdom and then die? Lose your life. Come to him. In conclusion, when I was thinking about this uh, passage, Thorn in the Flesh, it reminded me, I remember it, it uh, I think it was primary school studying Shaka Zulu and that was always like wow that's amazing uh, and and uh, I don't know if you know the story so he, he 
he felt that his soldiers were, were soft. And so he said, I don't want you guys wearing shoes when we're going into battle. In fact, I don't want you wearing shoes at all. And then he said, I want you to toughen up even more. We are going, you guys are going to run on fields of thorns. Okay? Anyone heard this story? It's a well-known story. So he would get his soldiers to run on thorns, thorn fields, okay? And they were not allowed to grimace or cry. He says, says this one historian, when he noticed the fighters were reluctant to tread on the thorns, he ordered them to march and sing with utter disregard for their pain. They were required not only to march, but to do so with enthusiasm on Shaka's field of thorns. Okay. And I don't think they were little thorns. I don't think it was it's proper thorns. A terrible thing, a, I mean, a painful thing, but he would get them to sing in the midst of that. And of course, we know from history what happened. They became the elite fighting force of the area. Nothing could stop them. Pain could not stop them. And there's the idea for us as God's people to begin to delight in the thorns of the flesh so that we will be victorious in the battles God calls us to. What battles are we called to? To fight sin. To fight the lies of the, the evil one. Wrong thinking, wrong philosophies. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. To evangelize, that's a form of fighting. Okay, in case you didn't know. It is. And as we evangelize and God saves, that old man is being put to death. That's what Paul says. It's a type of warfare. And so that's my prayer for myself, for all of us. Lord, may we learn to delight even in sufferings, because when we do that, your power is dwelling within us. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you so much for your word, and we thank you for this amazing passage, uh, so, so foreign to the natural man, to the natural mind. Uh, we want to boast in our achievements. We want to boast in our experiences. But, Lord, help us to boast in our weaknesses, in sufferings, in insults, in calamities, because when we are weak, then we are strong. And so, Lord, please do this. And, Lord, if there is anyone here who does not know you, uh, who still is deceived into thinking they're strong, and they've got it together, that they're the captain of their own destiny, that they have all their own rights and all of these things, Lord, please show them their sin and their foolishness and give them grace to turn to you. Grant them the gift of faith. And, Lord, we say... Uh, in a trembling way, thank you for the gift of suffering. It is a gift from you. It is for our good. And so help us to see it that way and to live it out in the week that lies ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.